All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. This last week, uh, while I was studying, I came across uh, Job chapter 9. And so kind of a, as an introduction to our text today, I'd like to read that. You don't need to turn there. You can if you'd like, but uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation. Just It reads easily for everyone to listen. But while listening, pay attention to how Job describes God. Verse 1, it just says, then Job spoke. He says, how can a person be declared innocent in God's sight? If somebody wanted to take God to court, would it be possible to answer him even once in a thousand times? For God is so wise and he is so mighty Who has ever challenged him successfully? Without warning, he moves the mountains, overturning them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and its foundations tremble. If he commands it, the sun won't rise and the stars won't shine. He alone has spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea. He made all the stars, the bear, the Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the southern sky. How does great things, he does great things too marvelous to understand. He performs countless miracles. Yet when he comes near, I cannot see him. When he moves by, I do not see him go. If he snatches someone in death, who can stop him? Who dares to ask, what are you doing? And God does not restrain his anger. Even the monsters of the sea are crushed beneath his feet. So who am I that I should try to answer God or even reason with him? Even if I were right, I would have no defense. I could only plead for mercy. And even if I summoned him and he responded, I'm sure he would not listen to me. For he attacks me with a storm. This is, you know, what Job is going through. He attacks me with a storm and repeatedly wounds me without cause. He will not let me catch my breath, but fills me instead with bitter sorrows. If it's a question of strength, he is the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, who dares to summon him in court? Though I am innocent, my own mouth would pronounce me guilty. Though I am blameless, it would prove me wicked. Because of who God is, how Job has described him there, how can someone like you and I even approach him? Why would a perfect, holy, mighty God even pay attention to us? Go a step further, why would someone like him even answer us? Is it even possible for a man, say like myself, to have a relationship with the very God who created everything? Well, if you've been studying with us from chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, your answer would probably be, no, I don't think so. You see, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And of course, he goes on, explains how man has rejected him, even though he was gracious enough to reveal himself to us 
through creation. He talks about how man went on and chose to live in sexual immorality, heterosexual as well as homosexual. He mentioned in chapter 1, verse 29, how we have become, we, mankind, have become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil and greed and depravity. Sometimes that is called the reprobate mind. He then talked about full-on hypocrisy, judging one another, and yet we were doing the exact same thing. Paul also spoke specifically to the Jews in the church as Rome, in Rome as they were confused. They felt that they had a guaranteed eternal future with God, yet they too were no different than the Gentiles. They continued to live in sin. Matter of fact, in chapter 2, verse 5, talking about the Jews, he said, because of your stubbornness, because of your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And if they didn't think that Paul was talking to them, the Jews, Paul said four verses later in verse 9, there will be trouble and distress for every human being. He pretty much clears that up. For every human being who does evil. And then he even says, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. And by the way, it's first for the Jew because the Jews should have known better. The Jews were given the word of God. No one else was. The Jews were given the scriptures, the laws. That wrath comes first to the Jew. Of course, you fast forward to chapter 3, verses 10 and following, and Paul basically says, look at let me just make this as clear as I possibly can, okay? And because he's speaking more so to the Jews here in this text, what he does, he goes on to quote the Old Testament, okay? Nine verses in a row are from the Psalms and the prophets, okay? This is basically Paul's way of telling the Jews, in case you have any doubts of what I have just explained to you, then listen to your own scriptures, the ones that were given to you, the Jews. Now, I'm not going to read all of them, but he says things like, like look at, there's, there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Your throats are open graves. Your mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The way of peace they do not know. He says, look at, there's no fear of God before your eyes. Paul is saying you and the Gentiles are in the same boat. You're all sinful and you are deserving of God's wrath. But all of a sudden, Paul comes to verses 21 and following. After he has revealed to them in every way possible that they all fall short, that all of mankind is sinful and depraved and vile and wicked, he goes on to answer the question that Job brought up. How does man get right with God? Can man get right with God? Therefore, I'm going to read verses 21 through 24. He says, But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known 
to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Folks, what I have just read to you is without a doubt the greatest news, literally the greatest news that any human being could possibly receive. If you live with an eternal perspective, that should put a smile on your face that should never go away. That being said, at the very same time, those verses are going to bring confusion, maybe even a little bit of anger to millions, if not billions, of people who refuse to accept it. And here's why. Do you realize that at least supposedly there are over 4,000 religions in the world? Going from the biggest down to the tribal community, 4,000 religions in the world. And go back as far as you want in the past, go back to the very present. If you would like, the goal of every one of those religions is to do this or be able to do that in order to somehow get right with whatever God they choose to believe in. Every religion in the world is based on a works or a deeds mentality. What do I need to do? What is essential for me to perform or accomplish to get right with my so-called God? Yet, Yet Paul says right here, there are none. God is the only way. They fail to see that the gods that they believe, the ones that will somehow accept their deeds, are not real. It's what they have created in their own mind. You've heard me say that before. That's the world we live in. I don't care if it goes back to Islam, who has a billion people, or down to whatever. People believe things that they've created in their own mind. Give somebody the exclusivity of the Word of God and the Gospel. Well, that's not the God that I worship. And they basically created a God in their mind that is a spitting image of themselves, right? I believe blank, blank, and blank, so therefore that's what my God believes. My God is all love. He won't turn anybody down. Go to the next person. Well, the God that I worship, you know, is going to look at your good deeds and your bad. He's going to bring you into heaven because you've had more good deeds. Go to the next person. Well, the God that I believe in, and you can keep going on and on and on. It's made up in their own mind. But if you want to get right with the only true God, which is the God of Scripture, you cannot do that through a formula or through deeds. Matter of fact, right there, the the, the last verse that we went through last week in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. He says, basically, you cannot earn your way to righteousness. But with that being said, 
based upon what I just read to you in verses 21 through 24, God is reachable, isn't he? And if, after all that, we can understand God is reachable, but you must understand that it is not by what you can do, but it's based upon what God can do for you. See? It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter what concoction that you have put into your mind where you think that you're just going to somehow freely walk into heaven right into the presence of God. Because you and I, basically all of mankind, are completely and totally sinful. There is no plan, no plan that will work for us. It must come from the very God that we desire to get right with. It must be God's plan. It must be His way, not ours. And this is why up to this very point in our study of Romans, Paul has spent almost all of it discussing sin, the wretchedness of mankind. I mean, he has explained over and over to everyone to, to look at yourself you live your life rejecting God, and, and yet somehow you think you're going to spend eternity with Him? You've hated Him for the 75 years you've lived on the planet. <laughs> and yet somehow you're going to waltz right into heaven, aren't you? It's bizarre. Now, even though Paul here has been dealing previously with the confused Jews in the church of Rome from the past chapter and a half or so, please know, folks, that this teaching really is for everyone. It, it, it's applicable to everyone, especially those who, who are religious, especially those who believe that I am on a clear path to God. Whatever that path is, once again, whatever God you've created in your own mind, there are those people who say, well, I'm on the right path to God. Folks, Paul made it clear while quoting the Psalms, while quoting uh, the, the, uh, the, the other ones, that no one is righteous, not even one. There's not a single person, he says, who does good, not even one. No person, no matter how religious If you don't believe that, folks, you're no different than the Jews in our text. And you too have a false sense of security. It's no, no different than you, than who he's talking to here. He says there's nobody righteous. Zero. Zilch. You're not going to make it to God on your own. In other words, even though Paul, folks, he did not hold back anything in these last two chapters, and if you've been here, you know that, okay? He's putting the whole world on notice, and he's told us we are all wretched sinners. But yet somehow there are those who believe that you will be okay. The whole world is a wretched sinner, but that's okay. You will be okay, and somehow it's worth risking your eternal destiny over that. Don't worry, Darren. I'll be just fine. <laughs> Folks, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Remember, Matthew was written to the Jews. 
Jesus says, for I tell you this, unless your righteousness surpasses, goes beyond those of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Why did Jesus feel that he had to tell them this? Because your average first century Jew saw their spiritual leaders and they thought, wow. That's what they thought. They were amazed when they saw these people. They truly believed that these people were virtuous, righteous as it gets, a cut above everybody else. Matter of fact, the Jews had a saying, if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee. But as I just read, Jesus said, that's not going to cut it. He just looked them in the face. It's not going to cut it. You're wowed by them. Their righteousness isn't going to get them to heaven. The righteousness of man will not do anything for you. Zilch. And therefore, we come to verse 21 this morning where Paul begins a section that says, but there is good news. There is a perfect righteousness. After, after all this talk of sin for the many weeks we've been studying so far, but there is a perfect righteousness. But it's God's. See, it must come from Him. Look what he says, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So coming out of this very lengthy discussion on man's sin and how he has no standing with God whatsoever, Paul begins this verse with, but now. Okay? What that means is he's contrasting what he just stated in all of these previous verses, especially verse 20, okay, where he said, no one will be declared righteous. No one. That's zilch. Nothing. Nobody will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. You won't get there by your own deeds. And so in contrast to that, He's saying, but there is a righteousness that is to be obtained, but it's not from you. It's not through the law. See? So he's giving some good news here, but there still is. There is a righteousness. It's, it, there is availability. It's just not through you. Now, Paul mentioned this ever so briefly in chapter 1, verse 17, where he said this, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. There is a righteousness, but it's a righteousness that is by faith. And so as I just read from you, verse 20, which was part of our study last Sunday, righteousness cannot be obtained by observing or, if you will, trying to live out the law. Okay, he made it clear as day. 
okay? And as it says there in the second half of verse 20, as well as in Galatians 3.24, it was never meant to. It was never meant to, to be set there to say, do this and you'll make it to heaven. It was through the law that we understand that we are sinners, and therefore it leads us to a Savior. That's what it also says in the second half. Rather, through the law, he says in verse 20, we become conscious of sin. So as we see here in verse 21, righteousness is available, but what does he say? It is apart from the law, right? You never gain righteousness by the law. He says what is offered is a righteousness from God. Now, similar here to chapter 1, verse 17, some of your translations, I believe the ESV and the NAS, they say a righteousness of God, okay? Now, even though there is a difference there, most theologians, generally speaking, we all come to the same I say we, I'm not a theologian, we all come to the same conclusion. What the NIV is doing here, folks, is he's giving us, it's giving us the result, which is really what Paul is trying to get at, okay? And let me just explain real quick. Yes, it is a righteousness of God, right? But as you know, through faith in the gospel, through our trusting in his death for us and our forgiveness, that righteousness... God's righteousness is now passed on to us, right? Hence the term, what? The righteousness from God. Does that make sense to everybody? Anybody. (laughs) It is the righteousness of God, but through faith in the gospel, it is passed on to you and me, and now it's the righteousness from God. But it's the same righteousness. It's God's righteousness, Kenneth Wee says, it is a righteousness bestowed on man by God. The state of the justified man, that's the Christian, the state of the justified man, he says, is due to God. The righteousness which becomes ours is that which God has ascribed to us. He's trying to make it clear, folks, It's not ours. It's not our righteousness. We don't have it, and we can't earn it, and we never will. It's ascribed to us. And so through faith in the gospel, which as I read earlier, you're going to see in the next few verses here, God not only removes our sin, right? He forgives us our sin debt, but he imparts to us his righteousness. That's simply what theologians call imputed righteousness, imputed righteousness. Folks, the Christian, through faith, stand in a right relationship with God because we are now justified. You know what justified means? Declared righteous. Because we are now justified through faith in Christ, we are, quote, declared righteous. Wow. Listen, folks, the gospel would not be good news if it simply revealed the righteousness of God. All right, that's cool. It gives me some understanding of God, but that isn't the good news. It's good news because that righteousness is now credited to us. 
Because we've learned for, for the last few weeks that we can't get it ourselves. It's impossible. We're doomed. But God says, I'll credit my righteousness to you. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he applied this to himself. He said this, He said, I want to be found in him, meaning in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Okay? Paul says, the last thing I want to do is to stand before God in my own righteousness. That is not what I want. He says, but I want to stand, he says, in that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He says, that's where I want to stand. I want to stand there in God's righteousness, which is through faith, not in my own. See? Folks, because of the cross and because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, God looks at you and he looks at me as positionally righteous. What do you mean positionally? Well, because there's a practical and there's a positional How many people in this room are practically, daily, righteous? Oh, good, we have no liars. No, we struggle. We still sin. We're practically righteous, but God has declared us positionally righteous because he now sees us through Christ, his righteousness. See, one of the great verses in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 I mean, this, if there's a gospel, this, this, is, this is it. And we, we know what the gospel is, but he says, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin. He didn't have any sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Listen, so that you and I, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Hmm. Folks, listen to me. That right there is the marvel of imputed righteousness. Okay? It's number one. It's recognizing, as Paul has stated all along, okay, we cannot do this on our own. You and I, mankind is a mess. We are wicked. We are vile people. We cannot do it on our own. And number two, how mind-boggling it is that he took our sin upon himself. And then in return, he gave us his righteousness. That's pretty amazing, folks. Which gives us number three, which you and I will never ever be able to fully comprehend. And that is the love of God. Why would he do that? That's the love of God. Why would he do that? He took our sin, our vileness, our wickedness, our depravity, and he placed it on himself who knew no sin, never sinned, perfect, flawless, God in human flesh. And yet, in return, he gives us his righteousness. With the most undeserving there is. Why would he do that? Why would a perfect and holy God deliver you and me from a horrible state of sin and depravity and place us in the possession of the greatest good, his righteousness. It's the greatest good there is, his righteousness. 
We can only say, I believe, what Paul said himself in 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Just, I mean, what else can you say? Let's continue. We're still in verse 21. He says, But now a righteousness from God, we just talked about that, apart from the law, has been made known. Those words there, been made known, it simply means to make visible. It literally means to lie in open view. Okay? The righteousness from God has been made visible. It is now open for all to see. What does that mean? Well, I think Paul does a great job when he tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He says, God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Listen to this, folks. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before, he says, the beginning of time. So catch that real quick. This grace was given to believers before the beginning of time. Christ hadn't even come on the earth yet. The earth hasn't even been spoken into existence yet. You with me so far? Now what he says is, but... It has now been revealed. Same Greek word. It has now been made known through the appearing of Jesus Christ. It was done through Christ before time began, but now it is made visible. Now it's made known through the incarnation. See? A righteousness from God has been made known, and it was through the life, and it was through the death of Jesus Christ. Christ and what he did, which was open and visible for everyone to see, is how you and I obtain righteousness. Sure, we can say, as Paul did, it happened before the foundation of the world, but it became clear, it became visible, it became real when Christ came and then died. See? And that's not all. He was also the fulfillment of God's saving purpose. We read in Scripture a lot of things took place before the foundation of the world. We looked at it in Ephesians, right, when we studied Ephesians. But we see it for when it came, when Christ came and what he did, when he actually died and, and so forth. But he is a fulfillment of God's saving purpose. Not just because of what I read in 2 Timothy 1, but because it says right here at the end of verse 20, right? Through the law we become conscious of sin. And through here it says in verse 21... It has been made known to us to which the law and the prophets testify, right? This righteousness has been, apart from the law, has nothing to do with the law, has been made visible, it's made known, it's clear for all to see. He says the law and the prophets testify. They witness of this very thing, okay? In other words, Paul was not giving them something new. This wasn't something that he came up with, okay, 
what has been made known was something that God had planned on and written about in the Old Testament Scriptures. The coming of Christ and what He accomplished on our behalf and how we receive it by faith, right? Remember, not the law, but by faith, was a fulfillment because it was foretold in the law and the prophets. And so besides everything that we have pulled from this one verse, he's telling this church the Old Testament scriptures that God had given to the Jews had written about this hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. Matter of fact, in our very next chapter, in Romans chapter 4, Paul himself goes back to Abraham. That's going back a ways, isn't it? And says that Abraham was not justified by works. But he said what? He believed God, right? Faith. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That was a long time ago, folks. Abraham, even then, it's not through the law. It's through faith. See? Habakkuk, verses, uh, chapters 1 and 2, Daniel 7, Psalm 22, Isaiah 28. Most of us know Isaiah 52 and 53, Zechariah 10, and I'm sure there are others. But listen, folks, the old covenant always looked forward to the new covenant in which you know Jeremiah spoke about in chapter 31. Jeremiah, matter of fact, Jeremiah 31, 31 there's going to be a new covenant one day. Matter of fact, and Jesus said, uh, I'm kind of a big part of that, right? Remember that? We're going to talk about it in just a little bit with communion. The first communion, Jesus was celebrating Passover. He says, this is a new covenant in what? My blood. New covenant. Hebrews 8.13, what was old has now been made obsolete, he says. The new is here. The old is obsolete. But he spoke of what was to come. He told us what was going to happen. Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus. Ken, I talked with you about this a couple of weeks ago. Speaking to the two men, he looked at them and he said, because they were all bummed out. I can't believe God let this happen to the Messiah. This is terrible. And he says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to, to not believe all the prophets have spoken. Why are you bummed out? Why are you mad at God? Basically, is kind of what he's saying. And then Jesus said this. He said, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Do you see that? Kind of brings us back to our verse today, doesn't it? Can you imagine Jesus walking down the road to Emmaus? Here, let me explain to you. Here, turn your Bible to Leviticus. Here, turn your Bible. And, and he explained to them what it said about him. And he's saying that here, see, as well. It was not about the law. It was about the Messiah. 
It was about Jesus Christ who came and he fulfilled what was spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures. It wasn't something new. The law was never there to somehow earn righteousness. It must be by faith and it must be the righteousness that we gain through him. Otherwise, you certainly got a lot to brag about and you don't. Which is why I appreciate how Paul went through all this lengthy time of sin before he finally got to the gospel to help them to clearly see you're a mess in every way you can possibly be. It has to be the righteousness that comes from God. It has to be imputed to you. Right? What a switch. He took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. And as you can see, there's a whole lot more that we can talk about, which we'll do next week. But these are the kinds of verses you're going like, wow, there's a lot to say. You can go a while on these verses. But I want to look at those next week because I wanted to take some time this morning and share in communion. I, as I'm going through this, I'm like, you know, what, what better week to, to not remember what Christ did for us, to remember the fact of what he did on the cross, and to know that it is through that that we receive imputed righteousness, huh? That's what we can look forward to eternity, forgiveness of sin, that God looks at you and me through the shed blood of Christ, not through what we can do, because then we're in trouble. That's glorious. That should, as I said earlier, that should be the greatest thing you've ever read. It should put a smile on your face forever of what Christ gave you and took from you. It's amazing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can look at this just this one verse this morning, Lord, but, but truly come to understand that there's literally not one crumb of goodness in us. There's not one single solitary deed that we can do to somehow enter into your holy presence. There's no way that we're just going to say, well, my God believes this, and I'm going to trot on into heaven and spend eternity. Father, thank you that we can understand that. Thank you that we can understand that we are depraved people. Thank you that we can give glory to you because of what you've done. It's, it's unimaginable the fact that the holy God in Christ, sinless, took our sin. He paid the price. He died, but yet gave us his righteousness. It's unimaginable, folks, to contemplate that as a human being, the greatness, the grace, the mercy of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we can just scratch the surface this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.